Richard and Mildred fell in love, found out they were expecting a baby, and got married. But then they were arrested in their bedroom in the middle of the night. The crime? Back in 1958, Virginia law banned interracial marriage. Their arrest set the stage for a years-long legal fight that made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and changed the future for millions of couples. Today on the Pro Se Movie Club, we're talking about the true story depicted in the movie, Loving. Is there anything you'd like me to say to them? And by them, I mean the Supreme Court justices of the United States? Yeah. And tell the judge. Tell the judge I love my wife. Hi, everybody. I'm Amber McKinney with the Pro Se Movie Club. I'm here with my two great co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, guys. And Alex Lawson. Hi, everyone. I'm excited to make our first foray into the Supreme Court here on the Movie Club. First time talking about a Supreme Court case in the Movie firsts. Club. First time talking about a true story in yeah. Movie Club. So we've really got a lot to unpack today. Um, but I want to get sort of your big takes on this movie overall. How about you go first, Alex? What do you think? Well, notably, um, I had never seen this movie before, um, and I have now watched it twice inside of a week, and uh, I am so glad that we're doing this because this is a movie that doesn't fit into a lot of conventional um, sort of boxes for the way that we've done the show so far, um, where basically it's it's about the people that are at the heart of the case. The lawyers and legal proceedings are sort of in the backdrop. And what you get in the foreground is this very tender, very intimate portrait of two people who are just trying to live their lives and are sort of using the law um, to try and do that. And it's a very sparse, very restrained, which I'm sure we'll talk a lot about the way it's sort of structured and the way they mm-hmm. unfold it. Um, but it's uh, it was it was quite, uh, quite emotional and quite, uh, quite striking to me. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, and Amber, like you said, I mean, it is the first true story that we're doing on the movie club. Might be the only true story that we're doing on the show. I think so. Yeah, uh, the Devil's Advocate might have been a true story. Yeah, right. <laughs> <Who could laughs> Debatable. Um, but I am very happy that it's this one because um, I think there's a lot of ways that this story comes out as like a paint by numbers sort of historical biopic. Yeah, you know, um, and this just, as you said, Alex, was not that at all. It's it's this quiet. Um, sort of understated, profound movie that lives in the silences in between the Mm. big legal stuff that you see. Like the scene of them just like holding hands in the car when they're driving into DC or the scene with the life photographer, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about. Um, The the climax of the movie, which we just heard is just a seven word, very simple sort of statement about loving your wife. I mean, it's it tells this story about this case that is so important and it gives you i think enough of the um the legal information to understand the case but it presents it to you more importantly i think in it gives you the stakes of the case by showing you yeah the human like the human toll that it took on these people and how much they loved each other and um it's really hard to do. And um, I will say on a personal note, I just got engaged myself, as you guys know. And, you know, it, it hits differently. I saw this movie when it came out and it's just the love that these two people have for each other. Like mm-hmm. it just I was I was weeping at the end of this film. Yeah. 
Uh, lots of Bill Donahue feelings over this one. Yeah. But I agree with what both of you guys are saying. It is a movie that takes you definitely into the real people. And we ourselves in Movie Club talk so much just about the lawyers. And mm-hmm. we're going to talk more about lawyers today a bit too. But I like that this movie primarily only takes you places that the couple goes. You don't yeah, really have a lot of right. scenes um, outside of what they experience as they interact with the law. And I think that's a very interesting take on this. You don't end up having big, fiery things in courtrooms except for the few moments when they were bef- in front of a judge themselves. Yeah. So it's a really interesting way to do it. And it's one thing to decide to foreground the, you know, the the sort of human story of the plaintiffs in your legal movie, but these are characters that are not particularly loquacious, you know, even no. as 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 right. um, by all accounts, that's how they were in their real lives. And the movie is almost slavishly um, faithful to that. Um, and so it's it, it it the the movie is giving you a lot of credit for trying to discern their emotional struggles. And um, you don't see that a lot in like in big Hollywood movies these days. Well, let's talk about some of the actors involved that had to portray, like you said, some relatively taciturn characters here. Um, Mildred is played by Ruth Naga. And I actually know her from such a silly reason. She was in the comic book adaptation TV show Preacher. And if you guys haven't seen it, it's a lot of fun. That's quite a cut, wasn't it? <laughs> wasn't, wasn't, wasn't Seth Rogen he like was, a producer, a producer. On that or something? Yeah, he was a yeah. producer. She actually plays a real like kick-ass lady in that. So it's a real departure from this quiet, restrained character. Mm-hmm. But um, the strength is the same in both characters. Yeah. So she's very good at, and- at portraying that sort of strength throughout. I was watching a little featurette with the director, Jeff Nichols, who we'll talk about in a second. But um, uh, apparently she was the only person that uh, that that auditioned for the role that she they they had a whole group of people. They were going to run through it and she nailed it on the first take. And they were like, do we just call it here because uh, we have our person? <laughs> right. Yeah. And then there's, of course, Joel, uh, Joel Edgerton plays uh, Richard Loving. And he's uh, he's an interesting guy. He's a good actor, and he's a filmmaker in his own right. I don't know if you guys have ever seen The Gift. Did you ever yeah. see that Jason Bateman movie? Yeah. No. That's, that's that's freaky stuff. Um, that's a whole other show. Um, but he does. Uh, he, he probably has like the the heaviest lifting to do in terms of like trying to emote with the audience while saying almost nothing. There's an interview with Nichols where he talks about like the guy was literally a bricklayer, and I wanted to get I I wanted to talk to Joel about like literally looking like you were a machine built by God to lay brick. Like you yeah. can see it in the way his, his like he's a little bit hunched. His over. arms hang down at the his way sides. His arms hang down. Um, he's just he's, he's, he's he you know doesn't make eye contact with anybody a lot and there's a lot of stuff going on between the lines um this is an actor's movie in a lot of ways just because the actual words they say are so sparse like i said and so a lot of it has to come across and like the way they present themselves and the way they tell the story with their faces they also made a real specific choice for some of the casting of the lawyers and we have to talk about nick kroll you guys i uh like you alex (laughs) this was uh for movie club was the first time i had watched this film oh yeah i didn't realize he was in it, and I laughed aloud when he appeared on the screen, <laughs> just because you're so used to him from being like from the league and you know Kroll Show and yeah. all of his really outlandish performances. But I actually think in a very quiet movie like this, it was smart to build in, if not comic relief, at least like a little levity with his casting. Yeah, I thought he did a great job. I'm a huge Nick Kroll fan. I love the Kroll show on Comedy sure. Central a few years back. I mean, but, that's an um, understatement. I mean, Bill, uh, <laughs> Bill is like at praying at the at the, at, at the church of Nick Kroll since I've met him. Um, yes. Uh, no, but I thought he was great. Um, it takes a second to sort of reorient yourself to not expect some ridiculous thing to come out of him. But um, 
in the little quiet moments, the big moment where, you know, he he's on the porch with with uh, with our lead that he just, um, you know, he he is he doesn't get in the way. He's I he think doesn't. He, yeah, he was a great he was great for this little side. Role. I did want to point out his father, Nick Kroll's father, is a Georgetown law educated man oh. who is a pillar in the corporate security industry. Like, I'm sure you guys have yeah, heard Kroll of Kroll Consulting. Consulting. Yeah, it's yeah. like K2 now or something like mm-hmm. that. That's his dad. So you kind of wonder if he just pulled a little yeah. bit of the acting of being a lawyer from that. Yeah. You but, mean to tell me that some rich kid's son went into comedy? That never happens. <laughs> uh, no, kidding. I think we also have to mention uh, Michael Shannon, who plays very, very sort of brief role playing the life photographer, but does an amazing job. Well, he's the Jeff Nichols muse. I mean, right. we, this is probably, we could probably wrap out Nichols here, too. Michael Shannon is one of those actors who, like, instantly makes, like, a movie better as soon as he steps into it. Such an expressive guy. Very uh, much like we've much like uh, Nega and uh, Edgerton plays a very downbeat character. He's not very showy. He's not doing the bug eyed, crazy Michael Shannon thing, Um, but only because those pictures of them are so famous in real life. It was it's a it's a very interesting choice to see the photographer, the people, the, the person who took that picture like portrayed in the movie and you know he's only in it for I think a scene or two. Yeah. Um but is we're we're, we're in good hands when he's uh, when he walks into the movie. Yeah, and and as you mentioned, I mean this is um Jeff Nichols is the director, uh you know, um it's a little different from some of his other movies, you know. He made like Mud with with Matthew McConaughey, which is sort of a like Southern Gothic coming of age tale. Well, that was of, early. Yeah. That was early McConaissance. Yeah, that's that's before True Detective, before Dallas Buyers Club, and that's when people were like, uh, Matthew McConaughey is like doing some stuff again. Yeah, uh, and there's there's yeah. sort of like some mysticism in a lot of his movies that uh, or psych- like psychological stuff with yeah. supernatural. It, Give me shelter was the. It's uh, Take Shelter. Sorry, Take Shelter. The sorry, opposite. sorry. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, take Shelter is awesome, by the way. Just watch that on Amazon after I watched this. I was in like a Jeff... Uh, Bill and I still have a lot of... Like, like we are on Jeff Nichols Island uh, mm-hmm. in, a, <laughs> in a big way. He's now he's now got the keys entrusted to him for the Quiet Place franchise. I don't know if you saw that. I did that. see that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, he's a, he's a... Yeah, this is... But this is an outlier for him. He does a lot of sort of genre-heavy stuff, and this is a... But it makes sense because it's a Southern story, and he yes. has sort of taken on that mantle of like the... You know, big up and coming director who wants to tell stories about the South. Mm-hmm. Yes. So let's get into some of our scenes now. We're going to, as usual, focus mostly on the legal aspects. So to get us there, it's 1958. We meet Richard Loving and Mildred Jeter. They live in Caroline County, Virginia. So it's rural Virginia. Richard's white. Mildred is actually, um, people often say that she's portraying a black woman, but she's actually of mixed heritage. She's yes. part Native American, part black. Mildred finds out she's pregnant, and the couple travels to Washington, D.C. They get married. They return home, and it's when they're back in Virginia that they get arrested for violating Virginia's Racial Integrity Act. Jarring scene, by the way. I mean, just like the the, the idea of your home being raided by the cops for the mere act of you being. Yeah, and that know. scene really plays like a home invasion. Yeah. It's got, you know, some tracking shots of them coming up the stairs, coming toward the bedroom. You know what's about to happen. It is it is very jarring. Well, and I thought an interesting part of the real life story was that they were from this town called Central Point within the county that was known as being a very ahead of its time sort of integrated place in in this otherwise very segregated place. Yeah. And I think they do a great job of leading you up to that scene. You get the sense that these people themselves do not even understand sort of what kind of hornet's nest they're kicking because they've lived in this world where this is a bit more acceptable. Mm-hmm. And you catch glances from people of like, yeah. 
oh man, this isn't this isn't going to go well. And mm-hmm. then so when it finally builds to this moment when they they raid the house, it 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 adds to that um, feeling. Yeah, and he and of course he he nails up the marriage license on the wall as sort of like a he thinks it's like a safeguard. And it's just like this like feeble attempt on like this to sort of lean on some legal tool yeah. to like be like oh this will be okay and of course it doesn't it 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 just yeah it, from it doesn't go well so um richard gets out of jail ahead of his his wife can't get her out there's um some back and forth about that but eventually the two of them end up in the offices of a local attorney frank beasley so i wanted to talk a little bit about him and what happens next well, here we have. Well, this is this is where we first meet Bill Camp, uh, which we didn't even mention in the uh, rundown. This is, I mean, he was in, um, he was in the night of playing an attorney. At, at, well, no, he was the he was a detective, wasn't he? Oh, you're right. Yeah, Sorry, yeah he was a detective. detective. Um, but hey, the guy the guy can play both sides of it. That's the right <laughs> point. Um, another mu- much like Shannon, um, a guy who like is kind of a bolt of lightning anytime he walks on mm-hmm. the screen in a show or a, or a movie. Um, but he takes a really great sort of like plain spoken approach to the to the people who may not you know to these to this couple who may not even quite comprehend the kind of trouble that they're in as you were saying bill but um it's uh it's uh, quite a character yeah he even specifically says that he's uh, presenting to them a quote unquote fair deal mm-hmm. and i thought that was a really interesting way to describe being banished from your home state and away from all of your family but there you have it now in exchange for suspending the jail time you and your wife unless you decide to dissolve the marriage, we'll be forced to leave the state. Leave the state? What does that mean? That's exactly what it sounds like. You two are not allowed to be in the state at the same time and certainly aren't allowed to be here together. For how long? How long will that last? 25 years. That can't be right. Look, you got a year in state penitentiary, which I remind you could have been up to five years at the maximum. You got a year in prison on one hand and leaving the state on the other. That's an easy choice. This was this was true to life, but I but I was struck by the kind of like <laughs> it's almost like medieval sounding, the idea of like you're banned from the state for 25 years. Like, I feel like you don't even really see that any, like there's like a finite limit to when you're banned or anything like that. It's almost, I think it's like when their children would come of age, I think would be the concern considering the, how these laws are rooted. Yeah. But it's just one of those things that sticks out uh, in, in, uh, in, in modern times. And you, I think he is such an interesting part of a story like this because obviously the judge is this horrible racist and, you know, believes in these things. And, the attorney is somewhere in this in-between area where he thinks he's doing these people a favor, but he's really, you know, he's he's offering up this this horrible deal. Right. You feel like you're being gaslit as you watch this scene Definitely. where the, you know, the fundamental thing is so wrong. But if you buy into the assumption that that is, you know, that that is the law, then sure, he's giving you a good, you know, it's better than going to prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it really kind of brings into focus some of what we talk about in modern times about um, perspectives on race relations, where this is a white attorney who thinks he's actually helping them a lot, but he's it's still not great. Right. Um, I mean, he's operating within the system at right. the time. I mean, he's not there. There will be other lawyers who will talk about who have, you know, higher, you know, sort of a, 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 like, like a more grand vision for resolving their plight. But I mean, at the sort of first 
first entry level. He's like, this is the best we're going to do. And yeah. I also thought it was really interesting when they get in front of the judge and they're taking this plea deal, they're entering their plea, their heads are down. They're clearly know that this is not great for their future. Yep. Um, but when the in that courtroom, they're reading the charges. One line stuck out to me was that their marriage itself is against the peace and dignity of the Commonwealth. Yeah. Which really puts in stark relief how this was all viewed in that time period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So after that, the couple, because they've taken this deal, they abruptly have to move to Washington, D.C. They're staying with friends. Um Mildred is still very pregnant, and Richard's mother is actually a midwife, and she has a big family, so she wants to give birth at back at home. So they smuggle her back in to have the baby. That goes okay, but shortly after she gives birth, both Mildred and Richard are rearrested. So that brings us to our next encounter with both the judge, who's very racist, and lawyer Frank Beasley. Um, they're in front of the judge getting told that they violated their parole. Mm-hmm. Yes, Frank. We asked for leniency. I incorrectly told the Lovings it was fine for them to return home for the birth of their child. It, uh, it was my mistake. Your Honor, I think... back here again. You do when you go to prison. This doesn't happen a second time. Yeah, and it's just, you know, it's more of what we were just talking about before about this attorney that, you know, he does what is objectively a, a, a nice thing for them. He goes in and he puts his own credibility on the line and, and lies and says that he told them to do this. And, uh, you know, it, it's just such a, um, it, it makes you sort of, it, it is hard to assess what like how good of a person he is because he is operating within this this horrible system, but he is doing this thing for them. It's it's an interesting sort of part of the ecosystem of telling a story like this. Yeah, definitely. And one thing I wanted to note about both this scene and the earlier ones with Beasley and and the judge, production actually filmed outside the real Virginia jail where the couple had been held, mm-hmm. and also inside the actual courthouse where they did that. They entered that guilty plea. So I thought that was just a nice bit of realism to this movie. Yeah. These are the only, I mean, I guess uh, until the very end when you get sort of a soft focus look at the Supreme Court, these are the only like courtroom scenes in the movie. Yeah. And I think it fits in with the tone of the rest of the movie about how it's about how sparse they are. Like, you know, it's like, I mean, it's. It's almost informal. Like they're just they're 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 just up there. They're standing. Like there's nothing fancy about the photography, or there's there's nothing grandiose about what's going on. It's a small, I guess, it's a county or or whatever courthouse, and it's just like you get it read to you and you get out. Like it's just it, it's in keeping with the very sort of streamlined nature of the way they tell the story, and it's up to you, the viewer, to sort of um, understand the way that they are digesting this, uh, all, all the stuff happening to them. So after this second arrest and and appearance before the judge we fast forward a bit in the movie 
we get to the point where now the um, couple has three children. They've been living in D.C. There's a lot of domestic scenes at this point about what their life is like there. No one seems particularly happy. Um, Richard's working construction. He's a bricklayer um, throughout the movie. Um, at one point, we have a, a bit of a turning point, and it sort of places the movie in time. And it's when Mildred is watching the March on Washington mm-hmm. on TV and seeing, you know, a push for civil rights and and racial justice. And it sparks something in her. She decides to write a letter about her predicament, mm-hmm. her families, and sends it to then Attorney General Robert Kennedy, mm-hmm. which, you know, it's not very often that you just send off a letter to the AG <laughs> and something happens with yeah. it. I don't know if that's a sign of how different the times were <laughs> yeah. or what but something does happen with it that actually gets passed off to the american civil liberties union and they give her a call yes yeah you contact me i'm a lawyer in virginia and we would like to help you hey. i see mama mama baby hush would it be possible for you and your husband to meet with me I would have to check with my husband. Okay, I'm based in Alexandria, but I have an office in D.C. if that is a concern. Well, as I said in my letter, we really can't afford a lawyer. No, ma'am. The ACLU will take care of any fees. Mrs. Loving, are you there? Yes, we'll see you. Wonderful. I'll have my secretary call you back instead of a time. Nice speaking with you, Mrs. Lovey. What did you think about the scene where she picks up the phone and it's the ACLU? I think there's a real lesson about the sort of sad reality about the American court system then and now to yeah. be learned uh, from where the emotional climax in this scene exists. The the music swells and the camera zooms at the moment that Mildred learns that the ACLU is going to pay for her case because the the you know she had been so certain that this injustice is happening to me but I can't do anything about it because I don't have any money I can't afford access to the justice system in the way that I need to so by orienting the scene and creating such you know emotional drama from that simple line of, oh, no, well, we're going to pay for the case. And to have her, you can see the emotion in her face. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing scene. And it's also, I think, an interesting way to look at the court system. I literally, in my notes, wrote down the power of pro bono. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So from there, who she's been on the phone with is um, Bernard Cohen. He is um, the character played by Nick Kroll that we were talking about before. And from there, we have a, a meeting, a first meeting between Bernie and the loving couple. He borrows an office for this meeting. So this <laughs> is a little bit of the comic relief we get out of Nick Kroll. You see him sort of rush in, put away a bunch of pictures that are not his because he doesn't want the couple to know yeah. that he's sort of this very green, borrowing an office guy, throws up his nameplate, gets out a legal pad and starts talking to this couple. Well, and I don't want to rock the boat too much here, but I held... I held my tongue at the top of the show. I don't if, if I had one note, and I, and I the movie is like really awesome. But if I had one note, like I don't 
there's something about the Kroll performance that isn't that doesn't quite jibe with me. If I have to be, if I have to be brutally honest, well, he hasn't been in a whole lot of dramatic films since. Well, right, and it's weird. <laughs> like I almost wanted like more levity or like literally nothing. It's like some very odd. Now it's not his. It's he's clearly directed this way. It's like a, everything about this movie is quite mannered. Um, but I don't know. It was just like that was like the one thing that I I could never quite realize. Like my Am I laughing at this guy? Yeah. Like, am I? So it's it, or is it just lighter, as you said? To you know? me, I read it as they didn't want to go too comic because it is a super serious movie. Yeah. I mean, what we're talking about is terrible racism and a giant Supreme Court case. Um, I read it as he's playing the character super eager. And yeah. you can really understand that for a young attorney who's clearly very smart, but just doesn't have a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a lot of elements in the script and we're going to even talk about a few more of them where he just admits like i am very hungry to make my mark on the law and this case will let me do that and i'm super invested in that aspect and so to me all of his little quirks that he puts into the character are him having like just sort of a nervous eager energy is how i read it yeah yeah, again, a, a, it's a very minor note. It was just, it was sort of like keep me on my back foot a little bit during some of the Kroll scenes. But it's, um, it's, 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 it definitely puts that part of the movie on a little bit of a different emotional wavelength, which is probably good. Well, we should probably talk about the content of what he tells yeah. the couple because it's, it's a pretty interesting scene from a legal procedure standpoint. He explains that to really get traction, they need to be in federal court, not in the state system where they've had yeah. their their earlier altercations. And it's been about five years at this point since they were convicted. They're well outside the window of appeal. So he makes some interesting suggestions about what to do next. Now I've given this some thought and I have a somewhat unorthodox idea on how to do this. My suggestion would be for the two of you to return to Caroline County, get rearrested, and then we will have an avenue for our appeal. You want us to get arrested again? Yes, it's an idea. I, of course, will be there to bail you out. We aren't going to do that. Right. I can see how that was a mistake. Yeah, so we really, <laughs> we really get a sense here that he's grasping. He really wants this case to work, but... This may not be a great way to do that for the real lives of these people. That yeah. it's really risky. Yeah, I mean, you, you, uh, I think it's easy from the outside when we analyze. You know, there's a, there's something sterile about yeah. a Supreme Court case when we talk about facts and we talk about the way that. And from that perspective, and perhaps from his perspective, to you know, it just makes sense. That's the way that you go get rearrested. Like you, you know, that's how <laughs> we're going to get this restarted. But. When you think back to the trauma that these people had experienced getting arrested the first time, his his pregnant wife had to sit in a right. hot jail cell for three days and they didn't know if they could get her out. It's, and now they have three kids. So right. there's that too. So it puts that um, that disconnect or that disparity between like the lived lives of people who are actually at the center of these cases versus like name v. name in a textbook. Yeah. It's very um, – I think it's interesting to see those two things. There's not a lot of times in this movie where Richard gets to be the one that has a funny line. But <laughs> yeah. we do get a good one right after they go into the parking lot at the end of this meeting. If he gets us home, we'll take the hill. Well, you get what you pay for. So after they have this meeting, they're still, you know, 
like I said before, a lot of this movie is family scenes and sort of getting into the lives of Mildred and Richard and what's going on with them. One of their children is playing in the street in D.C. It's very clear that they would prefer them to be playing out, you know, in a country field somewhere. And and the child gets in a minor accident, hit by a car. Right. Yeah. One of the one of the low key takeaways of this movie is that DC sucks. <laughs> I mean, they, I mean, they might have more progressive marriage laws for the time, but your kid might get smoked by a Plymouth. And you then know, what are you doing? This is said by Alex Lawson, who lived in DC for some I time, know, and I DC's also lived in DC, city. and I think we both loved it. Yes, that's true. Um, yeah, but. For purposes of this family, they are from the rural area. Yes. They don't really want to be in the city. And it's more about their comfort. And for levels. Mildred, yeah, it's the question yeah. of where do you want to live, and it should not be dictated by definitely. <laughs> and for Mildred, it seems very clear at this point. You know, this incident is really showing. I don't want to raise my kids here, so it's yeah. less even just about them as a couple anymore. And now it's about the whole family. So they decide to risk it and go home to rural Virginia. But they actually moved to a different county this time. They're one county over. Um, The kids can then run around and play. That's what they want. And they decide to sign on to pursue all of this in court with the ACLU. That brings us to uh, Bernie realizing he's going to need some help in this case. So what do you do (laughs) when you're a relatively young attorney and you are in over your head? You think to yourself... I'm going to go see one of my professors. Maybe (laughs) one of my old professors could put me on the right path here. So he heads over to Georgetown Law. And while in the office, he just by happenstance gets there at the same time that another attorney is meeting with that same professor who happens to be a bit of a constitutional law savant. This other attorney, his name's Phil Hirschkopf, and he's a recent graduate. The two start talking about this case and they quickly team up to try to move things forward for the loving family. I love a good uh, getting the team together yeah. scene. Yeah. Um, <laughs> even if it's just brief and it's just two team members. Well, I, what did you think about a getting a team together scene that's truly set in the office of a law professor? Yeah. That's a new one, right? <laughs> well, and and it, it sort of doubled, right? It was that, but it was also a very nice exposition dump because it sort of gets you up to speed on the legal stuff. One thing we have noticed in these movies as we've been doing this series is that there is a lot of, you know, technical stuff that they have to get into a script and finding creative ways to do it. Um, this meeting accomplished that. It, it reorients us. It, it introduces new characters. It serves a technical purpose in the story as well. Yeah, I really like, too, that this movie doesn't pull any punches about the ACLU saw this as a vehicle. Yeah. And it's really clear in this scene in particular because uh, Bernie and Phil talk back and forth about you know, what this case could mean, why the ACLU would want to, you know, push them toward being involved. Um, And there's a really nice sort of button on these two men teaming up when Phil realizes he better ask Bernie what he even knows about here. All right, look, I got to catch a plane to New York tonight, but I'll work up a draft and I'll find you on Monday. Great. That's just great. Thank you. Yeah. And Bernie, if you don't mind me asking, how much experience do you have with constitutional law? So, very little. <clears throat> you realize this case could alter the Constitution of the United States. I do. I'll call you on Monday. I love the disconnect. Well, it's not a disconnect, but it's a it's a contrast that you see between like the few sort of non-loving couple lawyer scenes 
but uh, when contrasted with the with the scenes of the lovings because it's like the, the lovings are aware of the impact of the case but like it doesn't dominate their conversations and then when the when the lawyers get there they're like okay this is like a yeah. huge deal and like <laughs> this is obviously a candidate to like strike down miscegenation laws and we're yeah. going to do it and we're of course worried about all the implications about whether we have enough experience and all of that stuff but it's like again it's a it's just a it's just a little bit of a wrinkle that you get through the uh through the legal scenes so now we have our dream team together we really get to the point where we get into the nitty-gritty of the procedure of like appeals and how you're going to get to next step and what i like the most about it is that they have to explain to the lovings that sometimes when you lose at the state level at the lower level that's not bad because it can really set you up with how the opinions are written for what you're going to appeal and how you're going to take it to the next step almighty god created the races white black yellow malay and red and he placed them on separate continents and but for the interference with his arrangement there would be no cause for such marriages the fact that he separated the races shows that he did not intend for the races to mix. I know it sounds strange, but this is really wonderful. By issuing this ruling, Judge Basile has really given us a roadmap right to the Supreme Court. I'm sorry, I'm confused. He ruled against us again. That's right, but now we're allowed to appeal that ruling to the state. From there, if the state rules against you, We'll have a chance at the Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, if you're trying to strike down a law against miscegenation, having the judge quote, uh, you know, have have like lovingly quote uh, like eugenics in in his ruling, is actually quite helpful for your for your very <laughs> very helpful. And that I I do think it's interesting in this movie because. As a lay person, if you just heard that opinion, you would be like, this is terrible for us. Right. Mm -hmm. But clearly the lawyers see this differently. Um, we also turn at this point in the movie to something I think we haven't talked about quite enough. And it's where we fall into uh, the ecosystem here, guys. Enough about them. More about us. Please. More, more about the media. Let's talk all about it. The real but, heroes here. <laughs> I mean, look. <laughs> but seriously, though, for a case like this, the ACLU wanted to court press. Yes. And to get some positive images of their clients out into the world. So they really kind of go on a little bit of a, a tour with the Lovings, get them to talk to the media, have um, the Life magazine photographer come and do an entire story on them. What did you guys think about those scenes in the movie? The gaze of the press is like a lingering it's I mean, it sort of looms over the movie in in the way of like, you know, you th this is something that I think, you know, stirs up a lot of emotions in people. And there's an interesting contrast between like the strategy to get them in front of the media and their sort of quasi reluctance to do so. I mean, they obviously sit for for photographs, which have become iconic in their own right. And um, one of my one, one of my favorite scenes has nothing to do with the law at all, but only since you're asking about like the way that the, that the press sort of like yep. plays in this story is when Mildred is doing the TV interview and Richard comes home and he like can't even believe it and he storms out and then she and they just have a very quiet exchange about how she thinks this is going to be good. She goes back in to finish the interview and he kind of like takes a beat and he's doing the Joel Edgerton thing where he's just kind of like. You know, thinking about it to himself. And all he does is just go back in, sit quietly in the rocking chair. And he's like, yep. okay, this is what my wife wants. This is what I think is good for the case. And then we get on with sort of the the, the PR aspect of this, the soft I, PR. Yeah. I think you really do start to see Mildred as, you know, 
and many steps in the movie, but particularly in this stretch, as the driving force behind wanting to proceed with this. I don't think Richard would have done this if she hadn't really wanted to pursue it in court and push forward. You also see her start to take in what some of the things the lawyers have been saying because Mm -hmm. she parrots back the idea that you can lose small battles and win the big war. So you get the impression that she's really embraced what they're doing and the concept of how they're pushing forward to get justice in this area. So from there, we move on to we get to the Virginia Supreme Court. They film this right outside as we're getting the the word that the Virginia Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of the state statute. They won't touch anything that the lower court has done. And this, again, is an interesting uh, bit between the, the actual family involved here and the attorneys where cameras are rolling and you see Bernie and Phil run up to the Lovings and yeah. say how hard they're going to work for them. We wanted you to know that with all this travel back and forth from Virginia, you have my number. And if anybody arrests you, you have them get in touch with us. We're not going to let you spend one minute longer in jail than it takes us to get down there to get you out, okay? Okay. Good luck to you. You did a good job today. (laughs) I sure appreciate what y'all are doing. Okay. Uh, We'll see you soon. Bye. Thank you, gentlemen. You know they aren't going back to Washington. And there's no guarantee we can get them out if they get arrested again. Mm -hmm. I just love the reality of this, where for press purposes, it's like, we'll get you out. We'll take care of you. Don't worry about it. But there are real stakes here. And the lawyers full well know that if this couple gets arrested again, they might not be able to get out of jail. So now we've come to the part in the movie where we've made it all the way through the system and the case does indeed get taken up by the Supreme Court. We all know how rare that is as Supreme Court watchers ourselves and our our day jobs here. Um, We have some interesting scenes at the Loving's house where the attorneys are explaining what's next. And there's lots of questions about what the state will argue, what their own attorneys will argue. And they kind of lay it out for us. What did you guys make of those? Uh, the the most striking part of this to me is when they have to explain when the when Phil and Bernie have to explain to them, um, you know what the state is going to argue, and they basically the the thrust of the argument in non polite terms is that they they think that the children that the Loving's children are like an abomination, right? I mean, he says he literally, he literally says you know they the, the state believes that they are bastards, and they and that the miscegenation laws are about protecting children right and it's like you can see them you can see that the attorneys kind of avert their eyes it's almost like they're uncomfortable to even tell this to the lovings even though they probably have a duty to do so if they asked about it and it's just i it's it's the first time that that's like explicitly been explained in terms of like a in terms of the, the the commonwealth's defense and obviously we've been exposed at this point in the movie to all sorts of unsavory stuff that like seems completely alien today but um, it's it's quite jarring to hear in that. And it's especially, I mean, it's it's no accident that it's like set in a domestic setting. They're in the kitchen. They're in their home. They're not in an office. The, the movie is communicating this to us in like nonverbal ways. And we mentioned earlier the, you know, Richard's uh, hesitance to be this pioneer, to be this, you know, this force in, in this case. And that Mildred is is sort of, you know, developing more agency to become this, you know, she understands what the bigger picture of what's at stake. I think at one point she says to Shannon during one of those earlier scenes that like, you know, we might lose the small fight, but win the big war. Yeah. But, um, you know, 
that they offer them the chance to go to these arguments and to be there and he just flatly says no and and um it's just it's you know I got to thinking about why was he so you know so unwilling to be this part and I you know, you you have to. Th- the, the, so much of this movie is them just being brutalized by by yeah. this law, and there's got to be some sense of of you know on his part of of shame that he you know that he can't be this person that like is taking care of his wife. I think at one point they say, and um, so it's just, and that of course sets up this that 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 climactic scene outside where you know I'm not gonna go, I'm not gonna be there, I'm not gonna do this whole thing. It's like I just love my wife. I just want to you know tell tell them that. You know, Richard, it's of course up to you not to attend, but you should know the Supreme Court only hears one out of every 400 cases. It's historic. Thank you, Mr. Cool. Well, is there anything you'd like me to say to them? And by them, I mean the Supreme Court justices of the United States. Yeah. And tell the judge. Tell the judge I love my wife. So I also like how this movie resolves everything. This is essentially some of the last big scenes we get, them hearing the news that it's going to the Supreme Court, deciding not to uh, go attend oral arguments in person. We do get a few little tag scenes that sort of start the oral arguments, but we don't dwell on that. It's it's just sort of a, almost almost ambiance in a way, the way that they put, present it in the movie. Yeah, it's like a montage. And yeah, what yeah. I like about that is that it keeps the focus on the Lovings. Basically, you have almost no scenes where the Lovings weren't in attendance. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a, there's a cross-cutting when you start to hear Bernie arguing before the Supreme Court, and it's, and it's interspersed with images of just the Lovings playing in their front yard with their kids. And the first shot that you see in that montage the camera's on the camera's on the ground pointing up at a tree and there's a rope thrown over the branch of a tree and what they're doing is tying like a, a swing for the or like a rope for the kids to swing on as they play and you don't have to be some kind of scholar of like race race relations in America to understand the imagery of a rope being thrown over a tree in the south and and, and instead of it being something you know heinous and brutal it's something like yeah. beautiful and right and righteous and um to to pair that with the impassionate argument for um striking down these interracial marriage bans um was uh, uh very evocative to me yeah so we do get a final phone call to mildred from the attorneys when they ultimately win i loved this scene as not just because you you know where this movie's going you know they win but it's it's nice to hear it but i also just sort of loved the the time and place of that that there's no law 360 there's no scotus blog yeah you've <laughs> got to get a phone call from your attorney yes. and i think in a lot of ways that you make this movie or you make uh, you know a movie about a big supreme court case you have some courthouse step scene or yes. you have some big thing but the the in keeping with how understated this movie is it's a phone call and it you know, in contrast to the earlier scene where you can really hear him on the other end, you can barely even hear him through. And so much of it comes through from how she reacts to this sort of quiet thing you're hearing on the other line. Again, it's just 
It's a very quiet movie, but it was very moving, I thought. Yeah, and and it is a quiet way to end something that truly so impactful on American life. I mean, not only did they win their case, the Supreme Court decided that the law in Virginia was unconstitutional, said that marriage is an inherent right. Mm -hmm. That was a, a huge turning point in jurisprudence there. And the decision not only voided that law in Virginia, but there were 15 other states at the time yes. that had similar laws. So this was impactful in a large part of America. So now that we have gotten to the end of the movie and the ruling, I think we should talk about um, what this movie got right. Normally we do right and wrong. There's not a lot of wrong here. It, it is a true story and they were very faithful to yeah. reality. But because this movie focused so much on the people and those dynamics, I think maybe we can just give a little bit more of a fulsome view of what was left out of the movie. Yeah. Um, so one thing Jeff Nichols in some interviews said distinctly that he didn't feel comfortable making things up with this story. And it really shows. I mean, everything's pretty faithful throughout. Um, they consulted Peggy Loving, the surviving one of the, the only surviving child of the Lovings on the film. They also consulted both Bernie and Phil about the movie. Um, and so I think w we have some things to talk about there. But I know, um, Bill, you want to talk a little bit about oral arguments. Well, yeah. The, and everyone should go. You can go listen to the entire oral argument on, um, uh, is it Oye? Or is it? Yeah. Oye. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, uh, the the database that... that um, One of those or, things I never said out loud until now. <laughs> it's always just a website <laughs> I visit. But yes, I'm pretty sure. Um, uh, the, the arguments that are made at the end of the movie by Bernie and Phil are word for word pulled from those arguments. So you can go and you can word search the, the arguments and then actually hear them. It's a very cool tool. Um, I thought one... Really interesting part of it was that um, the big line of the movie, which we played at the outset of the show, it was in the trailers, uh, you know, tell the judge I love my wife. It hits so hard because it's quiet and it's, it's you know, simple, um, but it's also directly from the true story here. It was mentioned during oral arguments. Um, Bernie, the Nick Kroll character, is up there arguing and he relayed this line to the court in making the case for why beyond the you know the the 14th amendment stuff that we're going to get into um beyond the the technical legal reasons for why this law should fall that it's just plainly in a in a in a from a basic standpoint very unfair as i started to say before no matter how we articulate this no matter which theory of the due process clause or which emphasis we attach to no one can articulate it better than Richard Loving when he said to me, Mr. Cohen, tell the court I love my wife and it is just unfair that I can't live with her in Virginia. I think this uh, very simple layman has a concept of fundamental fairness and ordered liberty that he can articulate as a bricklayer that we hope this court has set out time and time again in its decisions on the due process clause. So I really like hearing from oral argument, but another thing I wanted to talk about here was a real breakdown of the opinion, yeah. uh, pro se style, guys, because <laughs> um, I know this is a ruling from 1967, but still we're talking about here because the movie does end on sort of the top line, which is it overturned these laws throughout the nation. But I wanted to get into why and how, how the court reasoned there. Mm -hmm. So it was a unanimous decision. It was penned by Chief Justice Earl Warren. It's, of course, very famous. He's in the um, movie, too, his voice, anyway, <laughs> when, he, when, right. he, when he gavels in the, uh, the, the arguments there. 
Yeah, so it overturned the Loving's criminal convictions. It struck down Virginia's anti-interracial marriage law. Um, I want to talk about what Virginia had argued a little bit more. I know we've alluded to that a couple times. Do we have um, to, Amber? I don't know. Yeah, I'm not going to get too into it, but <laughs> no, here's yeah, what they said. Virginia said their Racial Integrity Act didn't violate the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause because it equally burdened both white people and um, people of other races because it didn't matter what your race was to be charged with this. It just mattered if you married a person of the opposite. Yeah. Having just gone through the oral arguments, one of the big, qu- they kept using M- Malaysian people as a, yeah. uh, it's a it weird was a, stand in, right? Yeah. Um, it's a, just, it's just a strange aside, but keep going. Yeah. So basically they said like, if a white person married a black person, then both the white person and the black person in the marriage would receive the same sentence under this law. And the state said, well, therefore it's fine. It's equal. We would charge both of them. And the Supreme Court at that time did have a precedent backing up that interpretation. But in Loving, the court rejected that argument. They said because it's the races of the people involved are why they get charged in the first place. That two white people that get married don't get charged with anything or two black people that get married. The race triggers the the action. Exactly. So the race triggers the action there. And that's how the Equal Protection Clause is you know, implicated here. Mm-hmm. The court also ended its opinion with this section about how the Virginia law also violated the 14th Amendment's due process clause. It said the freedom to marry is a fundamental constitutional right. That was yes. the first time that had been said. Mm. It held that if you deprive an American of it on an arbitrary basis, like race, that's unconstitutional. That becomes very important in later rulings. I did want to read one of the key quotes from the loving opinion. Marriage is one of the basic civil rights of man, fundamental to our very existence and survival. To deny this fundamental freedom on so unsupportable a basis as the racial classifications embodied in these statutes, classifications so directly subversive to the principle of equality at the heart of the 14th Amendment, is surely to deprive all the state's citizens of liberty without due process of the law. I read that part because it is often cited in future things, and I think the one most modern listeners would be familiar with is the Obergefell decision that um, allowed for marriage between members of the same sex. Definitely uh, pulled up the Obergefell ruling and control left loving uh, before sure. before we uh, hit record here. It casts a long shadow there. There are some other cases where I think there's a I, I forget the names, but there's a case where uh, allowing inmates to get married and another case about w- when uh, if uh, if a man can get married, if he owes like child support payments but the but but the point that we're getting back to here is the idea that marriage is like a is a the or the the, the right to marry is a protected right and that kind of you know cast that 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 informs all these all this jurisprudence that comes after. Yeah, definitely, it's hard to think of something more fundamental that could get changed by one case yeah. than declaring that something is constitutionally protected. Yeah. So this really was the big deal that. Bernie and Phil thought it would be. It really turned out. <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought up Bernie and Phil again because uh, we can talk a little bit about the the real life folks there. Um, Bernie Cohen uh, actually just died this past October. Saw that, yeah. Uh, he went on to have a long career in the Virginia State Legislature. Um, he served for more than 15 years. Um, he was ahead of his time. He, he introduced legislation about um, same-sex marriage way back when. Um, uh, so had a long and interesting career. Uh, Phil Hirschkop is uh, still with us. He he worked for the ACLU for years. He defended anti-war protesters. He worked for prison reform. 
somewhat famously represented uh, a member of the American Nazi Party while working for the ACLU, a fairly controversial case, but sort of in keeping with the ACLU's, you know, um, defending civil liberties, even when it's uh, somewhat inconvenient. Um, uh, So just very interesting careers for these two guys. It was the start. They were both very young at the time, um, but then went on to a lot of interesting things. So two more things to say about the attorneys while we're in this section. One, um, Law 360 had an interview that we ran several years ago with Phil and he was asked about his portrayal in the movie and if he thought it was oh. good or bad. And he said that um, he was portrayed as a little too mild-mannered. He's a little, <laughs> a little he more was, aggressive. Well, he was sort of the straight guy to trolls, <laughs> yeah. too. Yeah. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's true. Uh, which I thought was funny. Um, the other sort of just personal side note, my in-laws listened to the movie club and um, did tell me that they had met the loving attorney at a wedding once and no. talked about the case. <laughs> and I can't remember if they said it was Bernie or was Phil. Gonna, yeah. I think it was Phil. Um, I'll have to fact check that yeah, sure. after the show and, and let everybody know. But um, I thought that was really fun. And I was like, well, how do you know it was the loving attorney? Like, did you just know his name? What, I, <laughs> what are you talking about? My father-in-law said, no, we just started talking about our jobs. And then one thing led to another. And I asked him all about the case and like heard all about it. So He's like, there I was arguing a landmark civil rights case <laughs> before the Supreme Court Look, in that might was. sound braggy, but if I had this <laughs> I in my would. resume, I'd talk about it at every wedding I ever attended. Yes. So uh, it's a it's obviously a, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious now. It's a profoundly important case um, and uh, there's all kinds of stuff to read about it. Um, did just want to get a couple other notes here on the movie. Um, like I said, it's it's sort of almost uh, it's it's um, extremely faithful to the facts uh, of the case. I will say I was a little sad that we didn't get an RFK scene. Uh, oh sure. Would have, uh, only because uh, I always uh, am interested to see how aggressively people do the accent when they <laughs> cast actors. It might have overshadowed the. Uh, I, yes, the I'm almost certain film. that's why this was not. That was. I'm certain it was deliberate. But you know, these they're things, all so happy to be in this movie. The uh, things that are happening to these people in the Commonwealth is it's it's not right. Um. Anyway, uh, I also like that they did not um condense the timeline for the sake of the narrative. There's really something to be said for seeing the loving children like grow up around them and see the family that they build together. Like it, it, and there's never like a lot of dramatic scenes uh, with the kids, but it's just sort of an ambient thing. And it would have been easy to kind of just like obscure that or like, or just kind of maybe even push them to the side. Um, But it really helped colors up the story quite a bit. That's a really good point, Alex, because you know, I think as people that watch court cases a lot, we all know how long it can take. Yes. But as just a casual moviegoer, I think it's it's nice to be faithful to that it took almost 10 years mm-hmm. for them to get this resolution. So I can say as we're wrapping up here that I really liked this movie. I liked the quiet domesticity of it. As we're wrapping it up and, and talking about our final takeaways here, I think my big one is going to be that it really focused on people. And I found that really impactful. What about you, Bill? Well, I already disclosed at the at the start of the show that I wept at the end of this film. Uh, I I I loved it. I watched it, you know, when it came out, and it hit a little differently this time. But it's 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 a movie about how obviously like how the courts can be used to affect lasting change. But to get there for the first hour and forty five minutes of the movie, it's about how the law can be weaponized against mm-hmm. when when it's unchallenged and how the legal system can be so deeply inaccessible to regular people who are subject to it and you know these people are trampled by the law early on they the, the the scenes with the bail process in particular were just yeah gutting and and uh, so i 
it's just, you know, th- th- those scenes where y- you you see it and it is so manifestly wrong what is happening and it has this sheen of legitimacy because it is law. So, um, you know, it is the contrast of, of those two things in this movie that I think make it so powerful that they, they use the first hour and 45 minutes as a foil for what you're about to see. And, um, you know, it, it's, I think it has a great message at the end, but it, it before to get there, you know, these people had to fight and fight and fight and they had to find an organization that would pay for them to fight. And, um, you know, so it is, it is a tough movie to watch. I think, um, it, it makes the ending all that much more satisfying, but, um, but yeah, it's a tough one. Um, I, I agree with all that. I mean, it's, it's about as idealistic of a, um, of a depiction of the legal system as you can find. I mean, I think it says like when it is at its best, the law can give you the American dream, right? The, the right to literally build a house with your wife, who you love and your family on a plot of land that you bought, that you have a right to and all of that. Right. But to Bill's point, um, there are steps. It, 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 it is not served to you uh, on a platter for everybody. Um, and so you have to put in the work um, to make that happen. And as I've said a couple of times here, the way that the story is told by, um, you know, asking you to digest the trauma of the lovings and observe the observe their own restraint in how that and how they react to it and all of that is it's a fascinating movie. Um, and it meant a lot to me personally. I I don't not to again make it make it all about us or whatever. <laughs> I um I don't I don't think I've said this before. I'm I'm married to somebody who's not the same color as me. Um and it was it's not really something that I think about like on an everyday basis. I don't like, you know, go out and actively identify as, you know, a man who is married to a, a a brown woman or anything like that. But I mean it did sort of illustrate the struggle that like if I, I mean this this happened in my parents' lifetime. You yeah. know, it's not like yeah. it's some remote concept or anything. And it really, you know, it 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 gave it gives up I, I knew about this case, but I mean seeing the story told this way in such a in such an emotional way, in such a uh, restrained way, um, it's uh, it's it's quite moving. It's uh, it's it's really really quite a piece of work. Everyone should definitely go see this one. It really will hit you in the feels. It's it's really a great movie. Thanks for being with me today, guys. We also want to thank uh, everyone who joined to listen to this episode of the Pro Se Movie Club. Our producer Stephen Trader for editing today's show, and our graphic designer Chris Yates. Music for the show comes from Ashley Shadow. In our next installment of the Movie Club, we check out a Jim Carrey vehicle that asks the question, what if a trial lawyer spent the whole day unable to tell a lie? Head back here next week to hear our chat about Liar Liar. <laughs>